Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This is Intercepted. I'm Murtaza Hussain, a reporter with The Intercept. About 1am on the 17th of August, 36 hours since the Taliban took control of the Afghan capital, Kabul, in a surprisingly peaceful transition of power with the Afghan government led by Ashraf Ghani. That's Andrew Quilty, a photographer and writer based in Kabul. The remaining 15 or so provincial capitals fell to the Taliban in a matter of days bringing the then-insurgent group to the gates of Kabul late on the night of the 14th of August. It was a sleepless night that night for Kabul's residents who were anticipating the next day to begin violently. It was only a hastily cobbled-together agreement between the, the government and the Taliban that would see a peaceful transition of power In just a short time, we saw the Taliban take over Afghanistan. The Taliban seizing back power nearly two decades after 9-11, taking over the capital of Kabul in just a matter of days. The Afghan president has fled the country and U.S. troops have taken control of the city's airport, where thousands of Afghans are also desperate to leave the country. U.S. and U.K. troops are engaged in evacuating their citizens while the international community tries to define its response to the Taliban's lightning speed victory. If anything... The developments of the past week reinforced that ending U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan now was the right decision. American troops cannot and should not be fighting in a war and dying in a war that Afghan forces are not willing to fight for themselves. When the agreement was made that would see the the government fold, Most of the Afghan security forces shed their uniforms and left their posts. Across the city, former members of the Afghan National Army and the National Police could be seen walking from military infrastructure around the city, carrying sacks of belongings. And within a matter of hours, a security vacuum developed in the city. Looting began. Thieves dressed up to look like Taliban robbed people in the street. And within the matter of another few hours, the Taliban made a hasty decision to send their fighters into the city to fill 
the vacuum left by the retreating, disappearing Afghan security forces. We'll be hearing more from Andrew in a few minutes. The two-decade-long U.S. war in Afghanistan has come to a conclusion, with the U.S. having suffered what appears to be a stunning defeat. After spending over a trillion dollars and fighting a war that resulted in thousands of U.S. casualties and the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Afghans, the U.S. is leaving the country with the Taliban firmly in power. Vanessa Ghazari, national security editor for The Intercept, has spent years reporting in Afghanistan after the U.S. launched the war. Vanessa shared her reflections with us on the U.S. government's longest war and what the recent developments mean for Afghanistan. One thing I've been struck by watching what's happening now is that the videos we're seeing now come out of Afghanistan of men with RPGs on the streets of major cities and the streets empty and gunfire ricocheting around. And refugees in Kabul, in parks where a lot of us spent time picnicking or with friends. I'm just struck by how much it looks the way it did 20 years ago when the U.S. first got involved in the war. It's really striking and surreal how 20 years of our engagement there seems to just have been erased in a few days. But you also have to remember that Tens of thousands of people have lost their children, husbands, brothers, mothers, fathers, sisters to this war. Afghans, Americans, Europeans, and many others. In Afghanistan alone, according to the Cost of War Project at Brown, the total dead since October 2001 are 157,000, of whom the vast majority are Afghan civilians, security forces, and opposition fighters. And for all those people and many others who have been there in this period, these years won't be erased ever. They'll never forget what happened in this period. And while our war may be ending, maybe, the war is not ending for Afghans, and it's probably going to continue for a long time. You know, for a generation of Afghans and Americans, this war was a very strange beast. It was a tapestry of cultural marvels, dark stories, death, destruction, beauty, suffering, friendship, regret, guilt, and official lies. The biggest lie has been about America, about what this country is in the world, and about what we can and cannot do as the world's sole superpower. American exceptionalism has now been shown in so many ways to be a bankrupt concept. We are not strong. We are not capable. We are not principled. And so I'm thinking a lot right now about the possibilities for moral recovery as a nation, given the last 20 years of our history and what we're seeing now in Afghanistan. During most of the 1980s, the CIA secretly sent billions of dollars of military aid to Afghanistan to support the Mujahideen, or holy warriors, against the Soviet Union, which had invaded in 1979. During the past 18 months, the Mujahideen fighting inside the country have improved their weapons, tactics, and coordination. The result has been a a string of serious defeats for the Soviet elite units as well as many divisions from the Kabul army. 
The U.S.-supported jihad succeeded in driving out the Soviets, but the Afghan factions, once allied to the U.S., eventually gave rise to the oppressive Taliban and Osama bin Laden's al-Qaeda. That's the scene at this moment at the World Trade Center. Dan Daler from ABC's Good Morning America is down uh, in, in the general vicinity. Dan, can you tell us what has just happened? Yes, Peter. It, it, the second building that was hit by the plane has just completely collapsed. The entire building has just collapsed as if a demolition team set off. When you see the old demolitions of these old buildings, it My folded God. down on itself and it is not there anymore. The whole side has collapsed? The whole building has collapsed. The United States was attacked by al-Qaeda on September 11th, 2001. We're about to hit the 20-year anniversary of those attacks. They were horrific. This group and its leader, a person named Osama bin Laden, are linked to many other organizations in different countries. The leadership of al-Qaeda has great influence in Afghanistan and supports the Taliban regime in controlling most of that country. They caught... America almost totally by surprise in terms of the public. I mean, the security state was actually expecting these attacks. So that's a whole other story. But I think the public was really caught off guard by it. You know, it was, it was so surprising to people. I think that is part of why the notion of going to war as an answer to the 9-11 attacks was compelling for a broad range of the public. And tonight, the United States of America makes the following demands on the Taliban. Deliver to United States authorities all the leaders of al-Qaeda who hide in your land. The Taliban must act and act immediately. They will hand over the terrorists or they will share in their fate. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. These carefully targeted actions are designed to disrupt the use of Afghanistan as a terrorist base of operations and to attack the military capability of the Taliban regime. What happened was essentially an invasion that should have been a, arguably a police operation. Ostensibly, the, the U.S. government went there to go after bin Laden and the Taliban who sheltered him. But what's really striking about what we're seeing now and actually the negotiation process that has been underway between the United States government and the Taliban in Doha for the better part of 10 years now is that there was an opportunity to have that kind of a negotiation in the first months after the invasion of Afghanistan in October 2001. And the response of the United States to that was, we don't negotiate with terrorists. And so, you know, what's happening now is really painful to watch on a lot of levels. One reason that it's painful to watch is that tens of thousands of people have died who did not need to die in this war. And that's not even speaking about the other kinds of damage, the, the billions of dollars that have been spent. We have this military, we have this giant defense infrastructure that 
the people who are involved in that world and in that infrastructure, and there are many of them, need to feel relevant. They need to justify the gigantic budget that we have for these kinds of operations and for our military. And it just, it feels so wasteful and heartbreaking um, to think that this was this was kind of really a chance for people to spend money and play with their toys, essentially. You know, if you have a lot of guns and you don't use them, what are they good for? When I first went to Afghanistan in 2002, I was... I was a young reporter and it was my really my first time I had been in Pakistan the previous year but it and I was living in the region but it was my first time covering a conflict and the thing that has really stayed with me is that the way interviews are conducted in Afghanistan is often especially for someone new to the story as I was then there's a lot of history so you sit with people for a very long time and you hear what's happened to them and how their families have fared over these successive wars. So they talk about what happened when the Soviets were there. And they talk about what happened during the Mujahideen era. They talk about what happened when the Taliban came to power in the 90s and held power for a number of years. And they talk about what happened when the Taliban fell and where they were And then they talk about what was happening at the time about sort of the U.S. invasion and the U.S. occupation. The first wave, 50 Tomahawk cruise missiles like these, fired from U.S. and British ships and submarines. 25 warplanes off the aircraft carriers Carl, Vinson and Enterprise launched strikes from the Indian Ocean. And long-range bombers dropping precision-guided weapons, B-52s, B-1s, and these two B-2 stealth bombers. It was sort of the depth of sadness and suffering that people had been through there. I remember, you know, I would go out in the morning and I would visit with people and sit with them and hear their stories. It was so clear from listening to those stories what was important, and also just what it was like to live in a place where it was very easy to die, very easy to be hurt, very easy to have your life irreparably changed in seconds. And that really stuck with me. I mean, it's hard to convey how disappointing it is to watch this Uh, Not for the simple reasons that I think, for me, that some people are citing on Twitter that, you know, we just need to kill the Taliban, but sort of more for the reasons that I mentioned that this is this just didn't have to happen. After 18 months of talks and nearly two decades of war, the US and the Afghan Taliban have just signed a long-awaited deal aimed at paving the way to peace and the departure of foreign troops. Just as any worthy journey begins, it is a first step. And we know exactly who we're dealing with. If the Taliban do not uphold their commitments, President Trump and his team will not hesitate to do what we must do to protect American lives. The United States has been really appalling in how it's handled uh, the negotiation with the Taliban 
I think the agreement that was crafted under the Trump administration was not a good one. The United States negotiated, put those in air quotes, uh, an agreement under Donald Trump that seemed to basically be be centered on the fact that the United States did not want to be in Afghanistan anymore, which is not really the greatest way to negotiate your exit. So if if you know if you're broadcasting that you want to leave and the Taliban know that you want to leave and you're just looking for a way out, then you're going to take an agreement that is not going to be a good one for most of the Afghans who are still living in this country, I think, or the chances are much greater that you're going to do that. That is what happened with the agreement. Then Biden inherited this agreement. And I think Biden just wants to pull off the Band-Aid. Honestly, I think Biden has not wanted to be in Afghanistan for a very long time. That's why I opposed the surge when it was proposed in 2009 when I was vice president. And that's why, as president, I'm adamant that we focus on the threats we face today in 2021, not yesterday's threats. There are no good options at this point in terms of policy there. So anybody who thinks that there's really a great way to leave, I don't think so. I don't think there have been good options for us in Afghanistan since the very early you know, days and years after the war. So you know, we're left with this. You know, the Afghan people are are very tough, but they're also exhausted. This has been an extremely difficult period in one way or another for almost everyone in Afghanistan. And even the people who have benefited the most in this period have lived with a level of fear and anxiety. I can't be very optimistic about how this is going to feel to people. I saw a story in the Times um, in a picture of a car full of children evacuating their homes in one of the big cities in northern Afghanistan that was taken by the Taliban. And you just look in the eyes of these children and they're terrified. And, you know, anybody can think about what it would be like to have to pick up your kids. To me, and I think for a lot of people who were alive when the 9-11 attacks happened and and in in any way kind of participated in what happened after that, you know, either as a journalist or or just even living in this country during this period, um, this is a very resonant time. And I hope it's an introspective time for Americans and a time for us to think about how or if there is any possibility for us to be good again in the world. And I say again, we we clearly haven't ever been the nation that was envisioned. We haven't held to the ideals that this nation has spoken about. I feel that this moment is is kind of a it's a it's a reflection of how of how much we've failed to reach 
any kind of um, moral ground that we would want to stand on in the world. So what I hope is that what comes out of this is more clarity about what America is as a country, what we do in the world and the impact that it has. It it is certainly true that Afghans and their leaders bear a share of responsibility for what has been happening in their country in the last 20 years and previously. And there are many other actors who have been involved in the creation of the Taliban, including the United States, also including Pakistan, also including other actors. It's just very unfortunate that the people who have lost the most have been the people least responsible for what has been happening in Afghanistan. So the people who are in government, the people who have profited sometimes often corruptly during this period in Afghanistan, those people will have a better shot now at getting out of danger and saving their families than people who have suffered the most and and have been the weakest and the most vulnerable throughout this whole period and really have not been able to, except by very small individual acts, change the course of their lives. That was Vanessa Gazzari, National Security Editor for The Intercept. In the past few days, we've seen images of Afghans desperately trying to find ways out of the country. Harrowing footage shows people clinging onto U.S. military aircraft. The day after the takeover, thousands of people descended on the airport trying to make their way inside and onto the flights that had been rumoured to be taking people out of Afghanistan to Canada. The rumour was obviously baseless and, in fact, the airport had been entirely shut down to commercial airlines by the US military, who were obviously prioritising their own citizens. That's Andrew Quilty again. On the inside of the airport, people were shot and killed by American forces trying to control the crowd. And on the outside, the Taliban, who had been firing into the air to try and control the crowds, killed at least one in the crowd when they trained their weapons on the crowd itself. The need to leave Afghanistan did not come from nowhere. It's been building up for some time. The U.S. has been fighting a futile war against the Taliban for the past two decades, losing more and more ground as time passed. As the U.S. was pulling its forces out, Afghans were already attempting to flee the conflict. As the Taliban advanced, people panicked about the prospect of living under their rule began searching for any way they could to escape. A few weeks ago, Andrew visited the only passport office in the country and spoke with many who were trying to leave fearing widespread instability and violence. It's 5.15am on a Sunday morning here in the Afghan capital, Kabul. The sun hasn't yet risen, but there must be more than a thousand people already queuing here outside the country's only passport office. (laughs) 
In recent weeks, the passport office has been issuing up to 5,000 passports per day as the security situation in Afghanistan deteriorates and people look for a way to escape. Sardar originally from Balkh province and he came here to take the passport for his daughter. And why are you applying for a passport for your daughter? The major reason for me I taking the passport is the security issues. The Taliban is there, the war is there. I need to have my passport. But beside that, you know, there is some kind of sicknesses if needed. I need to go to for treatment maybe outside the country. But the priority, you know, it is uh, because the uh, security issues and Taliban and war and this, this, this things. It's not quite 7 a.m. The line outside the passport office has started to move slowly. It has also grown several blocks now. The queue stretches about 300 metres up one street, then bends around to the left to another, and then around again to the right to another. In total, it's stretching probably around 500 yards at this point, and there are well over a 1,000 people queuing up at this point. I'm standing in front of a painted mural on the side of a, a school outside which people are passing as they walk slowly towards the passport office. The murals painted in 2015 during that year's immigration crisis which saw Europe flooded with hundreds of thousands of immigrants from Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq and Africa. The paint is peeling now but the message is still pertinent. It says, Indari, don't risk your life or the lives of your family. Immigration is not the solution. What made you decide to come and apply for your passports at this time? In Ghazni province, the situation is very worse. Uh, we are living in uh, our house has a two floors. The down floor we are seeing, the upstairs, for example, the Taliban is staying. And they are asking us, you know, financially help them or from one family, one man need to go with the Taliban to the front line. This is some kind of the condition of them, you know. And uh, so this, when I came five years before to Afghanistan, my lifetime, I think that I'm, I'm spending my lifetime in the prison. It's very hard for me. The situation was bad in Afghanistan, but it get worse in the past one month or one month and a half. During this time, five years being in Afghanistan, I depressed it psychologically, I'm uh, affected very badly and the situation you could see like a lot of people waiting here if it continue we are expecting one day the human will eat the human after 7:30 several other queues have formed on the road on the final approach to the passport office there's a kind of ordered chaos to it all, and people are relatively patient. 13 years I worked with the foreigners. Over two years I was in Bagram. But the, prob the major problem is that it is a while I'm receiving phone call and text messages. And they are telling me that uh, don't come out from your house. 
we will kill you, we will assassinate you, we will kidnap your children. Um, you work it with the foreigners, this is the, the reason, you know. Um, um, I'm in a very under the pressure, you know. And what were you doing at Bagram? So my job was that there was some kind of uh, water tank and I was uh, driving and I was feeling, uh, filling the, 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 the tongs, you know, this was my job. But on the way, I don't know who followed me, who reported to who, I don't know who is behind the curtain, but they are keep sending me the messages, you work it with the Americans and I will kill you. And we don't know who it's Taliban or who is behind that, but it is uh, less than a month I'm receiving this threat. And uh, from the time being when the Americans try to leave Bagram. At 10 a.m. inside the passport office, the nominal order that prevailed outside on the streets where people were beginning their queue has all but disappeared. Inside a large shed-like structure with windows on all sides and fans twirling forlornly from the ceiling, people are looking completely desperate. They're banging on windows, sleeping on benches, crying in some cases. There's a sense of real despair. Actually, the situation is out of control because all the people of Afghanistan wants to have passport and leave the country because of, uh, I mean, the situation of country. Actually, it is more than 5,000 uh, per day. Since when has it been so, uh, so much demand? Uh, since actually uh, the recent situation, the recent situation that uh, mostly the, when the U.S. army leave the country, so the situation got bad, and the people wants to leave. Yeah. This makes me depressed. Not the situation. When I can't help my people, I just makes me depressed. Very crowded, unorganized. It's not uh, legal, it's illegal things, you know. There is no system in place. No instruction, no information is provided. We are, I have to go. There is no belief for the future. We don't believe to government. We don't believe to the Siyasat Madaran, the polit politicians. Uh, we don't believe the politicians and the political issue is not good. Has the situation changed um, because of the withdrawal of the foreign forces? The problem is with the foreigners, a big problem with the foreigners, they are leaving of course, it is affecting. But the major problem is with the, with the government. But so the government is not, there is no, no clear decision inside of the government to, f to work, means to fight against the enemy. And that is the major problem. A lot of people inside the passport office here are complaining to me about the same kind of disorder and dysfunction that permeates the government more broadly. And which has caused many people here to lose so much hope in the country that 
they feel they have no choice but to leave before they can, of course, if they want to leave legally with legal documents, they have this one almighty hurdle to jump through before they can. And then, of course, the next problem is acquiring a visa and is unlikely to happen for the vast majority of the people here in the passport office today. That was Andrew Quilty. He's currently in Kabul, witnessing the quickly changing developments since the Taliban's takeover. While the city itself is peaceful, there's a lot of apprehension when you talk to people individually. While the war might be over, the uncertainty of what lies ahead is a burden that's no easier to carry for most Afghans. And that does it for this episode of Intercepted. We have a collection on our site, theintercept.com, called The 9-11 Wars, and you can see all of our stories about the U.S. and the world 20 years after 9-11. Follow us on Twitter at Intercepted and on Instagram at Intercepted Podcast. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. This episode was produced by Jose Olivares and Holly Demuth. Supervising producer is Laura Flynn. Betsy Reed is editor-in-chief of The Intercept, and Rick Kwan mixed our show. Our theme music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. Until next time, I'm Murtaza Hossein. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider træt af alle de der podcasts og forklarer meget nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lytte til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel.